Hello, and welcome to The Energy Gang, a discussion show about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Ed Crooks. On today's show, we're going to be talking about some big news in US energy policy. And to do that, I'm delighted to welcome back Robbie Orvis, who's our resident Washington insider. Robbie is the Senior Director for Modeling and Analysis at the think tank Energy Innovation. Hi, Robbie. How are you? Hey, Ed. I'm good. Great to be back again. Great to have you back. And we're also joined again by Melissa Lott, who's the Director of Research at Columbia University's Center on Global Energy Policy in New York City. Hi, Melissa. Welcome back. Hey, Ed. Good to see you. Ravi, good to see you too. I have two teas prepared for this morning, (laughs) ready for this discussion. It's a big one. So one coffee equivalent. (laughs) (laughs) One coffee equivalent, yes. Yes. It's a new energy unit. (laughs) Sorry, I'm loving this already. Go ahead, (laughs) I was just going to say, Melissa, that I know you have been spending some time in Washington, D.C. recently. We're going to come on to that in a moment. But um, just before we do, I wanted to start off with what's been a big event in all of our lives in the northeastern US over the past week or so, which has been this massive pall of smoke that we had last week drifting down from wildfires burning in Quebec. I was out in it a couple of days last week, and it really was horrifying. I was down in Manhattan on the Hudson River, kind of looking across to New Jersey, which you can usually see very clearly across the river. It was barely obscured. There were just kind of dim shapes in the smoke. It really was. People have said it's like a science fiction movie, some kind of post-apocalyptic scene. It really did feel like that. If you don't live in this region, you'll still probably have seen the pictures. You'll have got a sense of what it's like. One of the things that the pictures really don't convey, though, is the smell of it and the taste of it, that kind of burning smell filling your senses, which was really powerful and, again, a really kind of grim thing to be confronted with. Of course, this part of the country, this part of the world is very far from the only one to have been affected by wildfires in recent years. We've seen huge fires up and down all of the west coast of North America, California, Oregon, Washington State, up into British Columbia. We've had massive fires in Siberia, in central Greece, lots of other parts of the world as well. Right now, as we're recording this, there have been large wildfires flaring up in Alberta again in Canada. So this is a reality that a lot of people are confronting. And if you look at the research in terms of what the IPCC says about the effect of climate change on wildfire incidents, it does seem to be the case that as the climate changes and warms, wildfire season gets longer and the area covered by those fires is growing. Melissa, maybe start with you on this. Would you think about those fires when you were watching this in in New York City? I think you were here, weren't you, last week? And what did it make you think about energy and the way that energy and climate relate to each other? Yeah, so it relates a couple of different ways to what we'll talk about in a minute when it comes to the testimony I gave at the Senate um, a couple of weeks ago. So the question that comes up in my mind is, are we designing our energy systems for the future we're facing versus the past? And in a lot of cases, no, like our energy models, our climate models, they're not talking to each other. And so things like wildfire risk and its impact on both demand and in some ways supply doesn't come into the equation as often as it should. And I know I put a thing up on Twitter that was citing some of the research we do as part of the Lancet Countdown, so the Lancet Medical Journal, and overall the team's findings in our report that we came out last year was that human exposure to days of very high or extremely high fire danger increased in 61% of the countries we track. 
from the early 2000s to today. So just in a 20-year period, less than 20 years, if you look at the difference in numbers, 61% saw an increase in exposure to very high or extremely high fire danger. And this has some real implications. My air purifiers were working overtime and there's an energy demand impact for that. How many people are going to buy those things? You know, what does that do to demand overall? What does it do to demand when we're staying indoors more? What does it do to our health fundamentally? It's not good stuff. Um, but in terms of the energy systems piece of it, there are impacts on supply and demand. And so thinking through that, you know, as we go forward and look at these increased risks, really important. So as you say, on the demand side, wildfires can affect things like demand for air purification the way people are living their lives and so on. I still think probably having an air purifier in the home is a pretty rare thing here in the Northeast. I think it's more common in other parts of the country. Certainly you hear about people in California saying it's a much more common thing for them to have there. But if wildfire risk grows, and this is something we're going to be having to live with much more in the Northeastern US, then I guess people here are going to buy air purifiers much more. And I would say it goes beyond air purifiers. So a couple of things like If you have asthma, you may already have an air purifier in your home, especially if you live in a city and if you live in a lower floor in your building or if your neighbor smokes or other things that trigger your asthma, you may or may not already have that in your home. And I know that's very, I would say, more common amongst my colleagues who have other health concerns than perhaps for all of us. I'm, I'm kind of laughing in my head a little bit because uh, I have been told by colleagues in many of my offices that if you work with me long enough, you end up with an air purifier because you know too much about right. what, what um, air pollution is doing to your lungs. Um, but, but that aside, uh, you know, it also does things like, what was I not doing? when the smoke was coming into the city. I was not opening my windows to get a breeze and I was using mechanical and and things that use electricity to actually get ventilation. And so I know uh, my friends in California, my old colleagues, they were using their air conditioning and their fans much, much more than just opening up a window and getting some passive breeze through your apartment, all these things. And these things add up. And when you put them on top of heat waves, when you put them on top of other types of extreme weather, they do affect our demand profiles. And what about on the supply side? You're saying that there's also an impact of wildfires on the supply of energy? Yeah. So I know the one that is talked about often is the impact of all the smoke in the air on solar production. Robbie, I saw you nodding your head, so I don't know if you want to comment on any of this. But it's one of those, okay, when you have extreme wildfire risk, you can think of two things, or at least I do. What is the impact on the actual power plant? So solar is an obvious one that come in there. And as we have higher levels of it, it's just something to keep in mind. But the second one is actually how does it affect our overall grid? So when you have a fire going through a region and that's where your major trunk line is, that's where your connectors are, what is that actually doing to your system? And what is that doing in terms of the reliability and resiliency of your system? And in terms of investing in different technologies, what does that mean in terms of the balance of distributed and centralized systems and also the build out of our grid that we want to see to have that resilient, reliable system? So, Robbie, what have you been thinking about as you've seen this far? I mean, you could also see the smoke where you live down in Washington, D.C., right? Yeah, it was... um... You know, it wasn't as bad as up in New York, but it was pretty bad. Um, and I, I was in the Bay Area for a half dozen years before moving back to, to D.C. And um, to your point, Ed, I, I had an air purifier when I lived in D.C. And we didn't bring it with us because we figured we won't need this. We'll give it to friends in the Bay Area. And uh, boy, we wish we had it last week when we were going through all of that. So, yeah, it was it was terrible. Um, and, you know, now, like many other people out there, I have a, a young kid. And, um, you know, I worry about that, especially with the wildfire smoke and just kind of looking back historically at, you know, there's been amazing improvements in air quality, you know, in the Northeast and elsewhere in the U.S. And to kind of see where the levels were, you know, last week relative to 
kind of how far they've improved is really jarring, both just because it's it's such a difference, but also just as a moment to think back and reflect on actually how far we've come on improving air quality and when we're reminded of what it used to be like. And if I can say one thing on this, it's a really great point. Like we have done so much with the Clean Air Act. We have we we benefit from cleaner air around this country. And one thing I also put in that Twitter thread when I was talking about wildfires was um, because I do energy and health, you know, I I take screenshots a lot of air quality indexes in different places I'm in and observing it. And I just gotten back from India where, you know, we were talking about days that weren't great in Delhi and Mumbai, but weren't the worst days. And the air quality numbers we were seeing were similar to what we saw in New York City. Now in upstate New York, they were spiking much higher. I mean, the, the air was much, much worse because um, they didn't have the coastal breezes and they also were just closer to the sources of the pollution. But to think about how much progress we've made in the US, that these things are actually shocking to us to the point where we talk about them quite a bit. Where in other parts of the world, it's not that these things still aren't hard, but they are so much more common that they may not always make top headlines, even though they're directly affecting health and energy and a lot of other things. I'll add just one last thought you know, we're talking about what do we think about energy, uh, you know, seeing the wildfire smoke. One other thing that of course comes to mind for me is offsets. And, you know, if we're looking at land-based offsets, are we factoring in? I think broadly speaking, the answer is probably no. Growing wildfire risk and what that means and how um, bankable, if you will, those offsets are given this world where we're moving into pretty quickly here. Yeah, that's a great point. I also wonder, Robbie, when you think about the politics of the debate over climate and energy, if you're actually seeing the smoke from wildfires in Washington, D.C., and as we know, sort of attribution science is still pretty complicated and emerging field. It's often very hard to tie a particular incident to climate change, but definitely in general, wildfires are linked to climate change. Do you think there's a kind of an impact of this in Washington? Do you think, as I say, people actually being able to see the smoke in the streets will change people's minds and attitudes at all? Um, I do think there are so many people talking about it and talking about it on the East Coast, not just the West Coast, where we, you know, folks have been talking about it for years, probably generates more, more interest and concern about it, definitely. But in, in the halls of Congress, I'm not sure. Right. Well, let's talk a little bit more about the politics of energy, because there's been some pretty big developments on that front in the past few weeks. The big news, of course, from Washington recently has been the signing of the Fiscal Responsibility Act. This is the legislation to avoid a crisis over the debt ceiling. Law was interesting for everybody in the world, really, because if the debt ceiling hadn't been addressed, could have been a massive global financial crisis. The debt scene has been suspended now until January 2025, safely past the next election. So it looks like that's something we don't have to worry about for the time being, at least. But also, that law was interesting very specifically in the world of energy because of, well, partly because of something it didn't do, which is it didn't repeal all the expanded and extended tax credits in the Inflation Reduction Act. That was something I think definitely that some Republicans in the House of Representatives had wanted to do, but they didn't get that. It was clear there wasn't really enough support in the Senate and strong opposition from President Biden to that idea. He's definitely committed to defending that framework of the Inflation Reduction Act, which is very, very supportive for low-carbon energy. And then on the more positive side, there were some moves in the legislation towards streamlining reform for permit awards for infrastructure projects, something we've talked about quite a bit on the show in the past, this question of 
whether it's too difficult to build infrastructure in the US and whether that's holding back investment in low carbon energy infrastructure in particular. And Melissa, as you were saying, you were just down in Washington, you were giving evidence to, was it, it was to a Senate committee, was it? And what, what were you talking about there and who were you talking to about it? Yeah, so this was the Senate Energy and Natural Resource Committee. Um, so it's chaired by Senator Manchin, uh, Ranking Member Barrasso, Senator Murkowski. So there's, a, there's a whole group of folks who we see in these discussions about what is going on with permitting, what is going on with the build-up of the energy system. And as we make progress to reduce emissions, like what are the things we're putting in place to ensure that the energy system is a reliable and affordable system moving forward? The focus of that hearing, the one that I was participating in, was about reliability and resiliency in the electricity system. And so it was coming on the wake of NERC's you know, flag that, hey, we've got some pretty significant risk of not having enough resources at the moment. We need them in the existing electricity system. And if we don't do something, and we can go into what something could be, and that's a big part of what the discussion was, we're actually setting ourselves up for more risk moving forward. And a couple of weeks before the hearing, oh, there was that meeting with the different FERC commissioners where they basically said, like, like a reliability event is essentially inevitable. Like that is what we're setting ourselves up for. And that's what the system is set up for right now. Um, so we talked about practical steps forward to actually reduce that risk and have a reliable system. Right. So that's really interesting. So quick footnote, NERC, that is the National... Electricity Reliability Council. What does that stand for? Yeah, so NERC is actually the North American Electric Reliability Corporation. So they lost an A in there somewhere, but we just call it NERC. But essentially, it's it's looking at okay across all the different states, like what is the system doing? You know what what can we rely on across different markets? What's the state of play? Uh, do we have enough capacity to meet our you know peak demand? Was in the summer, the winter? Dot 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 dot. Lots of different things. And when they are saying there's a growing threat of system failure, blackouts, brownouts, whatever it might be, and you see similar warnings from federal energy regulator, what are they basing that on? Why do they see that growing risk? So when you look at NERC and like NERC standards, the whole program is is aimed at ensuring reliability of bulk power systems, right? So when they're analyzing it, you can look at a couple different things. So one, you know, what is the amount of supply that we have compared to demand and what are the different trends we see in terms of that. So one thing that was highlighted during the actual um, testimony, during the actual hearing was, okay, if we're retiring a bunch of firm power resources like coal, are we replacing it quickly enough? And then you overlay that with demand changes and expectations of demand changes as we electrify different things, you know, in a lot of cases, not because we have a mandate to electrify them, but because Electric vehicles are coming on strong and, you know, electricity in our homes, induction cooktops, electric heating, heat pumps. What is it? The, the headlines that are out right now that I'm sure many of us are following about how they're outselling fossil fuel boilers right now. I mean, these types of things have impacts on the system. So the question is, do we have systems in place? Do we have enough resources in place to actually meet demand when we have it, given the, the different trends? So retiring of firm power plants. And this goes actually back to permitting, which I'll come back to in a second, but also changes in demand. So on the permitting side of things, one of the questions that comes up is if we're retiring out these coal plants due to a lot of different pressures in the system, including cheap gas, including cheap renewables, also including uh, additional pressure from whether it's insurance companies, investors, et cetera, to move away from the most carbon intensive of resources because they view it as an increased risk. Are we setting up our permitting processes to be able to get resources through that can fully replace that? And so are we actually setting up our processes to move more firm power into the system, whether it's geothermal, 
repowering of hydro, uh, carbon capture systems to actually retrofit or put on new builds, et cetera, et cetera. So, Robbie, what do you make of the legislation that's just been passed then? I mean, that's definitely trying to make a bit of a step in that direction, right? It's trying to make permitting easier. In particular, as far as I could tell, the crucial measures were about limiting the time taken for environmental reviews, that if you have what's called an environmental assessment, which is the sort of the more sort of preliminary kind of look at a project that has to be completed, I think, within a year. And then if you're going to have an environmental impact statement, which is the more involved and detailed review, that's got to be done within two years. And also there's some provisions that basically sort of say you can't keep coming back to projects and having new reviews over and over and over again. Do you think this is significant? And as there are various other measures, there's measures about trying to um, sort of streamline which government agencies get to intervene and to uh, make a say on infrastructure projects. There's regulations on use of data and what data can be used as it were, you know, data that you've collected in the past, what can you use for environmental assessments and reviews in the future and all that kind of thing. As I say, you put all that together, what does that mean in terms of really making a significant difference to permitting and the pace at which we're able to develop energy infrastructure in the US? Is it going to be significant, do you think? My reaction after reading and talking with folks is it's a small step that's needed. Um, and I'm going to put aside for right now the implications for different types of energy. And let's just narrow in on kind of what we think about the ability to build, you know, electricity sources. It's a helpful small step, but it's very, very incremental. And that stems from a couple of things, which is uh, one is that, you know, and, and Melissa, I'm sure knows more about this than I do. But, you know, one of the big challenges is building transmission. And uh, the challenges to building transmission are in part permitting, but they are, it's a multifaceted problem. And so, for example, uh, when you have transmission lines crossing different states um, or different balancing areas, working out how the rates work, that's a big impediment. And so there are several others like that where, you know, streamlined environmental, uh, you know, federal environmental permitting and review can be helpful, but it's not going to solve the problem on its own. And when it comes to deploying, you know, clean electricity, if the projects are requiring these reviews, then definitely expediting the timelines is helpful, provided it's still getting the necessary type of review. But there are, again, it's a multifaceted problem. And you know we've talked before about the interconnection queues and how that's one of the major barriers. And so I think from these reforms on their own, it's a small incremental improvement, but a lot more is unneeded to get to the end game. One other thought, which we can talk more about, but is on transmission, the bill basically punted on transmission for a later time. But what it did offer up is a study. And I'm curious what you both think about that. I've heard mixed reviews that it's it's not necessary and, and it may even be harmful to trying to expedite permitting issues and, and getting transmission cited, you know, kind of typical delay tactic. So I, I don't know what you all think about that, but... Um, my take in, in aggregate is it's, uh, at least for transmission and electricity deployment, it's pretty incremental. Yeah, I'm not sure specifically about this instance, but I have heard people say that it's the old Washington rule, if you really don't want to do something, hold a study, you know, <laughs> and that uh, you've got to suspect maybe part of what's going on here. Melissa, what do you think? i say three things. <laughs> One, the transmission thing came up at the end of the hearing. And part of this goes back to exactly what Robbie said. This is an incremental change and what we need to support the types of investments we're trying to deploy right now is a step change. 
like a significant change, not an incremental improvement, an actual step change. And that's not just about having a transparent process with timelines that make sense, but it's also about having a workforce that can process the sheer number of things we're trying to do. If we look at the number of potential projects coming over the next few decades, um, not just because of the Inflation Reduction Act, but because we have cheap wind and cheap solar. We want to tie in some of this stuff, uh, all these other new technologies coming online. There's just a lot of stuff to be evaluated and we need people to do that. But the second thing I'll say is when it comes to, <laughs> there was a Twitter thing. I'm not going to say if I disagree or agree with it, I'll tell you what I think in one sec, but I don't know if you saw Rob Gramlich's comments. So Rob said on Twitter, he said, essentially, Congress, you should just read the existing studies we have instead of commissioning a new study. So I think this goes to your point, Ed. What I will say is, my view on it is existing studies tell us one thing very clearly, which is that if we want to keep the system reliable and affordable and have options for responding to reliability events, big um, storms, other things, we want some degree of additional long distance transmission. And we've highlighted this in a bunch of reports out of CJEP. Now we can debate exactly what line where, et cetera, et cetera. But the point is something somewhere to give us additional tools and flexibility to respond to big events. And our systems are not set up to allow us to do that, at least not in an effective way. There's ways to do it with existing legislation. We wrote a whole report on that, but it is, it's threading a needle through some pretty difficult terrain and is not, again, set up to allow us to do the number of things that we're trying to do in the system right now. Wood Mackenzie's Solar and Energy Storage Summit is back it's taking place at the Palace Hotel in San Francisco on June the 21st and 22nd. You can join leading utilities, solar and energy storage developers and federal policymakers to discuss the big issues facing the industry today. How is the Inflation Reduction Act supercharging the development of solar and storage in North America? How can policy continue to support the growth of solar and storage to advance the energy transition? And what does the industry need to build a thriving domestic supply chain? Expect two days of panel discussions, presentations and workshops as we explore the opportunities for solar and storage now and for the future. It's going to be a great event and we look forward to seeing you there. I want to think about the politics specifically a little bit in one respect also, which is the role of Senator Joe Manchin. You say he's on the um, Energy and Natural Resources Committee that you were giving evidence to the other day. He's been seen as a very key figure in a lot of this debate. He's centrist Democrat, often a swing vote in the Senate. He's been a great champion of permitting reform and is keen to see it go through. It's been associated for him very closely with one very specific project, which is the Mountain Valley Pipeline, this gas pipeline running from West Virginia, his state, down to Virginia, enabling gas produced in West Virginia and the surrounding area of Appalachia, enabling that gas to reach markets in southern states of the US and therefore get better prices. So it's good news for everyone who produces gas in West Virginia. That project is being specifically expedited in the debt ceiling legislation that's just been passed. There are specific provisions on how it should get all the federal permits it needs and so on in order for that pipeline to go ahead. People have said, now Joe Manchin has got that. This is an important bargaining chip that's been given away you won't see such strong support from him for permitting reform in general, for the kind of reforms that could help electricity transmission, renewable energy projects get built in the future. How do you do that, Melissa? I mean, as I say, you're literally just talking to him. Do you think that there is 
something in that argument? Do you think that now we are actually going to see kind of momentum ebb away from this wider reform, this sort of step change that you're just saying is needed? We'll see, but I don't think so. And I say that because, again, these were little incremental changes we saw. And when you look at conversations, when you look at statements made by not just Senator Manchin, but a bunch of folks on the Energy and Natural Resources Committee, but also beyond that, there is a desire and pressure to figure out how we build stuff here in the United States, how we build big infrastructure. And what was just done with the debt ceiling didn't solve that. It did some things that probably will help and provide some predictability in terms of timelines, but it didn't solve the issue, which is how do we build stuff and build big projects. And of course, this always comes back to the discussion about designing a system that allows us to build the stuff we want to build, but not the stuff we don't want to build. And we all have different opinions on what those different things are. But fundamentally, like, how do we build things, whether it's a mine, a transmission line, a pipeline, or a power plant, or something else? How are we going to do that? So Robbie, what's your view on this? As you've been saying, it's a step in the right direction, but it's only a small step that we've had in this debt ceiling legislation. What do you think the chances are of getting some much more significant reform through in the foreseeable future? Well, I think uh, I agree with Melissa. And, um, you know, Senator Manchin has has said this is just step one. We have a lot more to do. I mean, he's been pretty public about his thoughts that much more is needed. And certainly what was in the debt bill is a, a lot less than what was in either of Senator Manchin's permitting bill last fall or the Republicans' the House passed energy bill from earlier this year, and it was one of the first things they did. So there's clearly appetite for energy reform. You know, I think um, if we're talking about transmission in particular, you know, I, I, I think the points you raised, Ed, are true in terms of, you know, what's left to negotiate around and that I don't know how that will play out, but it's something to consider. Um, and the other thing is just uh, there was some reporting after uh, the agreement on the debt bill about whether or not the Republican negotiators had kind of seriously been considering the transmission pieces that were proposed by the Biden administration and Senate Democrats. And they they basically, I don't, I don't know what the exact quote is, and I, I think it was either in political or E&E, but the quote was basically, we were never really seriously considering the transmission pieces. Does that mean it's not possible it will happen later this year? Of course not. Something else could happen. But I feel like there's often a tendency to say, hey, we pass this, let's put a checkbox next to it and move on to the next important thing. So I hope we get another round of discussions around the need for this, because as Melissa and I were saying, it's been so incremental what was passed so far and a lot more is needed. And this point, this transmission point was flagged at the end of the hearing that I was at and that I was testifying at, where I was saying transmission and Senator Manchin flagged it right at the end and they were going into the the debt ceiling bill vote and were pretty confident it was going to pass and they knew what was in it. It was pretty locked in at that point. And so it was a, it was flagged pointedly transmission, not just infrastructure and permitting, but transmission. That is certainly interesting. I guess maybe a hopeful side and, and certainly one we're going to be watching in the months to come. I wanted to change the subject a bit, staying in Washington, really staying on the subject of energy policy, but moving from legislation about energy to regulation. Reason being, we've had three very uh, significant emissions rules proposed recently by the Environmental Protection Agency, one covering light vehicles, one for heavy vehicles, and one for power generation. And in terms of the way that energy policy is made in the US, 
the, the legislative route that we've been talking about a lot, but the regulatory route is also often very, very significant in terms of changing what actually happens in the energy system. And so all three of these rules, I think, are well worth looking into. I mean, Robbie, could you talk a little bit about these rules? What are the three and why are they important? Sure. Yeah. So that's right. I had three, three big rules that have come out this year so far. Um, I think I'll, I'll tackle them in uh, increasing order of complexity. Uh, so the simplest one, not that it's simple, but the simplest one is EPA's tailpipe rules for heavy-duty vehicles. So you know, heavy-duty trucks, typically class four and above. And so those rules set CO2 tailpipe standards beginning in 2027 for those classes of vehicles and tightening limits uh, over time that uh, would improve the efficiency of vehicles either through engine improvements or improvements to the body and materials used, or of course, you know, potentially moving from diesel and gasoline combustion engines to a mix of say battery and fuel cell engines. Uh, so that's one set of rules. The next one would be the light and medium duty rules, which are combined together. Now that's a little bit different. That's what's called a multi-pollutant rule. So it covers more than just CO2. It also covers things like oxides of nitrogen and particulates. And that rule sets tailpipe standards again, beginning in 2027 and building on the last set of standards for vehicles out into the future and, and tightens the limits on those vehicles that again would, would lead to some efficiency improvements and light weighting. And then in the long run, uh, you know, presumably a switch to a higher share of plug-in vehicles, battery or plug-in hybrid, and the possibility of fuel cell vehicles. Uh, and then you have the power plant rules. So this is under Section 111 of the Clean Air Act. And so uh, these rules set emission standards for existing coal power plants and new and existing gas power plants. And there's a lot of nuance to how they're structured, but the kind of you know, long-term goal is it would result in a big decrease in CO2 emissions from the power sector. Right. So when you look across those three rules then, are there kind of common themes to me? And what does this tell you in general terms about the Environmental Protection Agency, what its strategy is, and what the Biden administration is trying to achieve? Yeah. Well, one common theme is that all the rules factor in the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, and so I think, you know, there was some discussion certainly last year about, boy, you know, we haven't seen these major rules from the EPA yet, but they've been discussed, you know, when are they going to come out? And and we're seeing them now all come out after the IRA and factor in a lot of the incentives in the IRA. And so those incentives are driving both what the baseline looks like. So what would happen in the absence of the new regulation, and then also the compliance costs of the different proposed measures under EPA. So and because of the IRA, both the baseline and the ambition of the rules are, you know, resulting in higher shares of clean technologies being deployed and lower CO2 emissions. Right. But that strikes me as a really interesting point. This is one of the things I haven't really looked into this for the vehicle rules, but I did look very closely at all the documentation around the power generation rule. As you say, it doesn't seem to have a catchy name yet, but if we call it Clean Power Plan 2.0 for now. And the thing that really kind of jumped out at me, I mean, this is buried, this is on kind of page 550 or something of the impact assessment for this rule, but it still seemed to me to be really important, is that the EPA does not think this rule will have a massive impact on US greenhouse gas emissions from power generation. 
certainly not by 2040, I can't remember, but they show the kind of with the rule and without the rule scenarios, and it's something like a 3% difference. Very, very small. So you kind of think, why bother? And you also think, well, as you say, because what essentially is going on is that the Inflation Reduction Act and also just changes in the power generation industry in general are driving coal power plants out of the market. The coal-fired power plant fleet in the US is aging, gets to the point as these plants come to the end of their working lives, is it worth extending them, worth investing a lot more money to keep them going? And the answer generally is going to be no. Gas-fired plants are cheaper. Renewable generation is cheaper. So these plants are going to go away anyway. And the extra impact of the regulation in forcing them out of the market is going to be pretty minimal. So you can see why, as I say, the kind of that modeling of the impact of the regulation that sort of intuitively seems right, that probably isn't going to make a big difference. In which case, I guess it raises the question, why have that kind of rule at all? So, Robbie, when you think about that, when you think about those projections for the impact of the rule, what do you think? Well, I think, you know, you raise a, a good point, And I've heard other other folks say, how is this rule not doing more? And so, you know, one reason is obviously because we don't know the true future of the coal fleet. And so it could be more like 100 or it could be 69. The other is that, you know, I think what we've seen, if you, for example, look at uh, in Ohio and West Virginia, where the state legislatures have been bailing out the coal plants that are uneconomic, is that, you know, the private sector doesn't actually always do what's economically is rational or makes sense. And so, sure, with the IRA, there's these incentives for CCS and there's all these incentives for clean electricity. Um, and we think and hope it's going to transform the electricity sector. But we don't know. Maybe states will will want to shell out to, to keep their coal plants online for, you know, for labor, other reasons. And so uh, standards like what EPA has proposed here you know, we always think of them as kind of like a backstop. You know, if the market doesn't play out how we expect, then the standard will get to the same point. And in this case, you know, as with all rules, the EPA does a regulatory impact analysis to look at the benefits and costs and the benefits, you know, are required to outweigh the costs for the rule to kind of move forward. So Melissa, what do you think of this strategy then of using regulations in order to drive change in the energy system and also as Robbie says perhaps to be a kind of a backstop just in case either market forces don't drive the industry in the way that you'd like or in case there are political movements that try to hang on to higher carbon sources of energy. Robbie I can see the logic flow and I can see what you're saying and certainly it's a big part of the discussion in terms of backstops and this came up with the was it the clean power plan and all types of other things it's like what are the different tools we have in our toolbox the executive orders the different agencies can act in different ways we can pass things on the hill pass things in states cities i mean there's lots of different tools in the toolbox about how you encourage the development of a system like you want it to be in the future when it comes to EPA stuff i think ed i have a bit of a bias here in the sense of I look at the health impacts of air pollution from the energy system every day in my work. And so CO2 and other greenhouse gases contributing to climate change, there's health effects there. Absolutely. And they're happening already today because the climate is changing, all those things. 
We'll put a period at the end of that sentence while we go into the next one, which is all the stuff that, Robbie, you mentioned it, the nitrogen oxides, the sulfur oxides, the particulate matter that comes from these systems. Not only has the evidence over the past few decades gotten so much stronger and worse about how air pollution is affecting our bodies as these big multi-decadal cohort studies. We've got thousands of people being tracked, you know, saying what's happening to their lungs, what's happening to their hearts, their bodies as they're affected by air pollution. We have that study that came out that says we're affected by air pollution before we're born, while we're still growing in the very, very early stages of our lives, we're already being impacted by air pollution. And so when I look at the, you know, 1300 premature deaths, 300,000 less asthma attacks, and I think about all of the little lungs that are still developing right now and like how air pollution will change as a result of this, I go back to like EPA and their mission well beyond a climate agenda, going back to like the Clean Air Act. What do we know now about what air pollution is doing? And how should we regulate as a result of that? Now, I absolutely understand it's more complicated than that, 100%, because there's health impacts from reliability issues from energy systems. We have to make sure that our electricity grid is developing in a way that is less polluting, but also that still maintains reliability. But the last thing I'm going to say, Ed, that is absolutely front of mind when I'm looking at these regulations is the disproportionate impacts on certain parts of the population. So all of us are impacted by air pollution and climate change. We are not impacted the same. And I think that came up a lot in terms of the justice piece of this in what the EPA put out. And there are numerous studies, whether it's looking at communities in West Texas that are around fracking sites that are flaring and impacts on mothers who are pregnant or mothers of young children, you know, and the health of those young children. And those are predominantly, you know, not white communities, they're predominantly minority communities. So if you are black and brown in the US, you are more at risk. So I think I just personally have a different viewpoint of what comes, you know, front of mind. But I realize and completely respect that other people see this as a different tool using in a different way. But for me, it's those asthma attacks and those premature deaths and also the productivity lost workday numbers. How many people are waking up and they can't go to work for a variety of reasons having to do with air pollution? I completely agree with you, Melissa. And I kind of just to build on it, what I see the rules is doing is kind of saying these impacts are bad. They're with, you know, each due study for the most part, we find new ways in which they're worse than we previously thought. And now because of investments and, you know, legislation and state policy over the past decade, we have a new set of tools, technologies, for example, to address these issues and incentives to do so. And so these rules are tackling those health issues head on and leveraging the IRA, the infrastructure bill, technological progress, et cetera, to make that happen and to improve our health. And that's the key point that I think needs to be highlighted again and again. And something that I've, I talk about so many times, I feel like that thing from elementary school, this is a song that never ends. It just goes on and on <laughs> my friends that keep on you know, singing it, which is what you just said, Robbie, which is technologies are not in the place they were even a decade ago. Even five years ago, when we look at the different costs and like, okay, it's not a choice between you know cost and less air pollution in many, many cases, because we have technologies that have advanced thanks to decades of investment and concerted efforts, support by the federal government and other groups, that we have these technologies that we can now deploy, but then we have to make the choice to deploy it, which goes back Ed, to what we were talking about earlier, which is the number of things we're trying to build will be very difficult to do across the whole system if we don't figure out permitting and siting issues. Yeah, absolutely. And one other thing that I think is really important uh, in this whole area as well is the issue of the role of the courts and the legal system. And there are questions that are raised by using the regulatory route, which makes your energy policy always much more vulnerable to legal challenge. And the courts and the Supreme Court 
ultimately will come to play a much more important role. And of course, the Supreme Court struck down Clean Power Plan 1.0 in a ruling last year that's very significant for environmental regulation in the US. But as you say, these are unfortunately going to have to be subjects for another time because we're going to have to move on. We're running out of time. Just before we go, we need to do our free electrons. Robbie, um, what's yours? Yeah, so I thought I would spend a couple of minutes just talking about this news about uh, GM and Ford partnering with Tesla to adopt Tesla's charging. Very standard. interesting. Yeah, fascinating, isn't it? Yeah. So just uh, you know, very quick background. There's basically been two charging standards. One called CCS, which I think is the common charging standard, and NACS, which is Tesla's, uh, which they cutely call the North American charging standard. And so basically, you know, to date, for vehicles can charge at one or the other, or they need a special adapter, but those always haven't been available. And in prior legislation like the infrastructure bill, the NEVI program, which is what it's called, provides funding, but requires that the ports all be the CCS standard, kind of the open market standard. And so there's been this big divide between Tesla and everyone else. And what we've seen now is that Ford, and then right on the heels of that GM announced that starting pretty soon here, their customers will be able to access Tesla's supercharging network of more than 12,000 chargers, they will have an adapter that the vehicle owners can use to use the network. And then starting in a few years, they're going to move their vehicles actually to be equipped with the Tesla version of the charger. And, and then they will have an, a, an adapter to use the CCS standard. And so this is really a big deal. I think there's been a lot of discussion around what would happen with vehicle charging and would there be two standards and it's, you know, the uh, folks on this show have talked about before the reliability issues of the non-Tesla charging networks. I just, I saw a study yesterday from JD Power that somewhere between 20 and 40% of people who go to use chargers find that they're not working. And I, anecdotally, that number pencils out for me. Um, and Tesla is known for its reliability uh, of its charging network. And so I think, you know, reading different analyst opinions, it's not 100% clear if this means the end of CCS, CCS in the charging context, that is, for one reason, uh, being that Tesla's charging standard doesn't support bidirectional charging, but CCS does. And so we don't quite know what the future there looks like. But I think it's hard to um, overstate what a big deal this is. And I would expect that we will shortly see a handful of other manufacturers announce deals with Tesla. Yeah, that is absolutely fascinating and definitely a subject I think we should uh, come back to on a future show. Melissa, what's yours? Because Robbie's got one of my favorite ones already. Thank you for that, because now I get a second one. But I agree with you, like, that's fascinating and awesome. And, you know, I know that the charging network was a huge part of our decision in terms of the EV we ended up purchasing, which was at the end of the day a Tesla, because it streamlines a lot of stuff for us. Anyway, so... That aside, I'm going to flag a different one, uh, which is actually an article in the FT talking about U.S. battery supply chains. And it, okay, full disclosure, it cites a new study from the Center on Global Energy Policy, but I didn't write that study. That was written by <laughs> colleagues of mine, um, Tom Warren-Houghton, Ahmed Mehdi. And essentially what it says is that when we look at just the numbers and we look at supply chains, and this goes back to what we've been talking about, Ed, with like building things. Um, the finding in the report was that it estimated, so Tom and Ahmed estimated that North America produces enough cathodes and anodes. So these are like really critical parts of batteries to meet less than 20%. The number was 18% and 8% of current demand respectively. So 18% for cathodes, 8% for anodes. And 
given this increasing battery use and projections, I mean, to me, we know there's a gap. This report put numbers on that gap. So we're not talking like a 5% gap. Okay, we can kind of figure that out. We're talking a 80 to 90% gap in what we actually need and want. And they looked at in terms of the different impacts of the IRA, but what the Inflation Reduction Act and U.S. battery supply chains, all those dynamics, and what we would need to do if we actually want to close some of this gap. So I love numbers and I love having numbers against this thing that we've been flagging as, ooh, we don't really have enough capacity. Well, how much of a gap are we talking about? I love having the numbers now. Yeah, agreed. It is fascinating. I mean, clearly there's an enormous amount of activity going on. There's a lot of announcements of investments. There's many billions of dollars being committed to that supply chain in the US. But as you say, yeah, it's a great reminder of just sort of how big the gap still is and just how much still needs to be done. My free electron is the inauguration of the Energy Gang book group for the first time. I'm blaming you, Melissa, for this because this was something you set fault. me going on. But <laughs> I think actually is, is kind of a nice idea. And I think it's something we should do. And for the first book, I'm suggesting, and Melissa's actually waving her copy right now, <laughs> which is this novel. It's a kind of near future thriller called The Water Knife by Paolo Bacigalupi, who's, a, I think, a great sort of sci-fi-ish writer, a bit sort of William Gibson, Neil Stevenson, if you've read either of those guys. It's sort of somewhat similar in vain, but it's essentially a work of cli-fi, climate change fiction about, in particular, water and water scarcity and water rights are the kind of the driving motor of the plot. Chinatown meets Blade Runner, someone's described it as, which I think probably captures it pretty nicely. And so I think it'll be fun. I think we we all need to read this. So I know, I think, Robbie, you've read it already, haven't you? Melissa, you said you were reading, but you've not actually started it. I was inspired by you mentioning it. I've got to chapter two. I'm already totally gripped. It's, it's really nicely written and very exciting. Yeah, and a very, very sort of vivid and compelling and plausible description of a dystopian future United States where water scarcity has become the defining fact of life. So I'd like us all to read it and we can get together again, maybe at the end of the summer, and we can all discuss it because I think it's really interesting worth talking about. And I think it would be a fun thing to do in general to kind of all be reading the same book. Obviously, if listeners, if anyone out there wants to read this book, share your opinions as well with us over social media, Twitter, whatever it might be. We'd love to hear what you think. And maybe in the future, we'll do it with other books, and maybe we'll have some slightly more serious books in the future. But I think it's appropriate to have a fun one for the summer. So that's what we're going to be reading. I'm excited. Ed, after we talked about this, I did put Smell down. Vaclav Smell got put down for a little bit. I've read a lot of smells, so it's okay. But I'm going to commit to this, and I'm going to read it by the next time uh, the three of us are together. And I'm excited. And you being so into it after chapter one and Robbie's light review of it in our meeting the other day, I'm I'm excited to go through this. So you won't regret it. Trust us on this one. It does say on the front, Chinatown meets Mad Max. Oh, that that's also very good. on the front. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> we'll see. Now, how many of the readers know Chinatown? Uh, well, yeah, okay. I mean, that's a, that's another question. That's also a classic, though. And uh, but let's, yes, it let's, is. Yeah, we'll start with our book club maybe uh, initially, and then move on to film club at a later date. <laughs> I mean, guys. Blast along like a twin battery Tesla. That's the review on the back. Who in the interview? <laughs> is it really? Book? I'm just saying. Wow. It does. That's what it says right here. Wow. <laughs> it's so good. 
Excellent. Well, very much looking forward to our discussion on that then. But unfortunately for now, we do have to leave it. Many thanks to you, Melissa. Good to see you, Ed. Good to see you, Robbie. Enjoyed the discussion as always. Absolutely. Yeah. Many thanks, Robbie, for joining us today. Thanks again, Ed. Yep. Likewise, Melissa. Many thanks to our producers, Tavi Biggins-Gilchrist and Sam Nash. And above all, of course, many thanks to all of you for listening. As you know, we're always keen to hear your thoughts, praise, criticism, comments, whatever it might be. Uh, If you've got ideas for future shows, subjects that you think we ought to be covering, do let us know on Twitter, Mastodon, LinkedIn, wherever you want to track us down. Uh, We're on Twitter at at The Energy Gang, and I'm at Ed underscore Crooks, if you want to find me there. And uh, we'll be back again in two weeks for all the latest news and views on what's next for the energy transition. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye.